Well, we will be <clears throat> in Nehemiah chapter 9 uh, this afternoon, and um, we are seeing the <clears throat> repercussions of the work of God and His Word among the, the people of, of Israel, the Jewish people. And <clears throat> we've spent the last few weeks seeing how a revival is breaking out among these people. And they are reestablished now in the city, and they are focusing on God's Word, and the Word of God and the Spirit of God is moving. We would call that, in, in so many terms today, uh, a revival. There is a reviving of the Spirit in the work of the people there in Jerusalem. And <clears throat> we have seen many times um, in churches this idea of a revival, um, I know growing up, when I was going to church, you would go to a revival. And in that experience, in that uh, three or four day event, you were praying and you were hoping for the Spirit of God to move and to work. Um, and there are still to this day revivals that go on. Maybe some of you could say, I was saved one day at my grandma's church in Podunk, Arkansas, at a, what was called a revival. But the truth of the matter is, is revival is the Spirit of God moving according to the work of God in our hearts. And that's all that really needs, you don't need a tent, you don't need a preacher that stands up and stomps his feet and, and shouts really loud. You just need the Spirit of God and the Word of God to do a work among a group of people. And there's a lot of great historical um, revivals or awakenings that have happened and really, this is what we should pray for in all of our lives and our hearts. God is constantly wanting to teach us and to guide us according to his word. And so that's why we focus on his word. We ask God to do such a work in us and we come humbly submitting to it so that he might do a revival in our hearts. So he might bring forth revival so that we would have a fresh understanding of what the spirit wants us to see and it leads us to change. That's revival. Could be one person, could be a hundred people, could be a thousand people. But the spirit, of the, word, the spirit of the Lord and the Word of God does and brings about such change. And this is what we're seeing in the life of these Jews. The Word of God was delivered. It was read. They were hearing it ex, uh, expounded upon and taught. And now in chapter 9, we see the response of that. What's interesting, as we've looked through Ezra and Nehemiah together, is that we, we saw a similar thing in the book of Ezra, where Ezra, the priest, would sh share the word of God to the second wave of people that came in dealing with uh, sin in their own hearts and lives, particularly the sin of intermarriage. He saw and, and, and arrived on the scene to see that the Jews had fallen back into sin, doing what they, God had forbidden them to do, which was to, uh, they were forbidden to intermarry with other nations. Because in intermarrying with other nations, they would adopt the cultures and the, the ultimately the religious practices of those nations. Therefore, syncretizing their faith with other faiths. Therefore, worshiping false gods. And so God didn't want to allow such a thing, and so he forbid it. 
And Ezra found the people once again intermarrying, uh, falling into the same idolatry. And Ezra calls them out, proclaims the word of God to them. And there was a small revival that broke out in Ezra's day. Now the third wave comes. Ezra's still there ministering among with, along with Nehemiah. And the same thing happens. They proclaim the word of God. The word is delivered. The spirit of God does a great work. And chapter 9 is often called this long prayer of confession. I would call it a confession of God's greatness. Because in this prayer, what we're going to see is we're going to see the fact that, that as we confess our sins to God, we're doing it in relationship to who God is and His character. In other words, for us to truly confess our sins, we have to have some spiritual or theological backbone to us. We have to understand who God is in light of who we are. That leads to proper confession. If we're just confessing to, for the sake of confession, without it standing in contrast to the character and the holiness of God, then oftentimes it's just ritualistic. It's not genuine. But when we are so moved and changed by who God is, we thus confess, based upon that, our failures and our weaknesses, giving God the ultimate glory. So this is how we will uh, see our, the people, the Jews, in this uh, state of uh, confession and really exaltation of God's great character. And so if you're following along, if you're taking notes, first we're going to look at a declaration of God's greatness above all. Now we see that it's the 24th day of the same seventh month that we've, that we've um, been in. This is the holy month. Remember, they've gone through the Feast of the Trumpets, the, uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles. Interestingly, the one day that's not mentioned that's, that was required in this holy month is the Day of Atonement. We don't see them practicing that. I'm not saying they didn't. The, the Ezra just does not record those things. But what we do see is them practicing the Feast of the Trumpets and the Day of, or excuse me, the Feast of the uh, Tabernacles or booths that we talked about last week. As that whole uh, festival concludes, we see a great movement of the Spirit of God whereby they begin to mourn over their sin. Look in verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day, and for another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Here we see them responding continually in worship. And it leads to them confessing. They would, they would enter into a proper uh, posture of confession, a, a posture of humility. There they are putting on sackcloth, which was irritant. And they are fasting from food to focus their mind and attention. They, they put uh, dirt and earth upon themselves as a sense of, of mourning. As if to say, God, we are truly aware of the great sin of our lives. And we want to confess that to you. And I think that as a church, we, we need to acknowledge the fact that the confession of our sins is a proper attitude of worship. 
That as we live in our lives acknowledging that God has so moved in us and transformed us, that He is now exposing these deep, dark recesses of sin in us. And that when we confess that sin to God day by day, that is an attitude and an action of worship. And to forget or neglect such an area is not to worship the Lord in spirit and truth in a proper way. We oftentimes shy away from being so transparent with God as if God doesn't know what we have already committed. But the truth is God already knows. Our confession of sin is merely an acknowledgement that we see what we have done that God already knows that we've done. And then therefore He is glorified in our honesty. He's glorified in our acknowledgement of what we have done. And so these Jews, here they are separating themselves, as, they, as it says, from all the foreigners. That is an acknowledgement of what deep, dark sin the Jews were acknowledging that they had fallen into. A continual co-mixing with the worldliness that surrounded them. Being drawn into that worldliness. Wanting to so adapt themselves to the culture instead of changing the culture around them. And so they confess it. That's their sin. And they are immersing themselves in the Word of God. And so we see this list in verses 4 down to verse 5 of these Levites that we've seen. They're standing there again, uh, instructing the people like, like preachers, but in a large congregation, a large assembly. And they're saying, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This, um, this chapter of chapter 9 is, is really considered like a psalm. It's written very much like the psalms of the book of Psalm. And it's, it's, it's written in a, in a way in which there is, there is a, a section of praise and exaltation of God. And then there's a section of, of personal confession. And that's what we're going to see here today as it drives us to consider our own lives in which we might live in such a posture of confession of, of our sins and in exaltation and worship of God. Notice what they, they, they enter into this worship with declaring the great goodness or greatness of God. First, they declare His great creation in verse 6. You are the Lord alone. You have made the heaven and the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and that's all that's in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. When we consider the, the understanding of, of, of God's great creation, the very initial point in which God reveals Himself to us, we're flabbergasted by His power. We're, we're amazed by his, his, his beauty and His design of, of all that God has done. And we must stand back in awe. And in doing so, separate ourselves from even being close to that glory. So much of, of man's great sin is trying to be like God. 
Creation itself testifies that we don't stand a, a, a chance being like God because of all that He has created, of all the glory and the majesty that surrounds us. Think of the beauty of the ocean. How finite and small you seem just standing at its banks. Imagine yourself to be a God as God created these things to be. It's insane for us to consider us, consider ourselves as human beings to be godlike. And yet there are people suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness that think that they have some power or strength that is like or equal to God. Or to even be God themselves. <clears throat> it is truly idiocy. And so we stand with great awe of all God has made. Knowing that all of, the, uh, of God's creation, the heaven and the hosts of heaven, worship Him. They bow down and, and honor Him. Because of His great splendor and His majesty. The fact that it says that, that He has even not only created those things, but that He is preserving all of them. Sustaining the life. From the very smallest molecule to the greatest mountain. God did not just not put those things into place, but He is maintaining them in order and governance day by day. Our own very lives. We know by His providence that nothing happens with an accident. That every step of our way is directed and fashioned and molded by God's great plan. And so we trust Him. And the, the prayer that goes forth from these, <clears throat> these religious leaders is first to focus on God's great creation. But secondly, His election. Verses 7 and 8, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gigashite, Gergeshite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Nehemiah is, uh, this, pa this passage in Nehemiah is just one other example that we can look to the, of the Old Testament and the New of the great doctrine of God's election. That God is a God of, of, of love, casting His, His, His uh, sovereign love upon those that He has chosen. And it is a, a difficult doctrine in our day. And we oftentimes hear the argument that, that God would never do such a thing. That that's just a, a, a theology of the Apostle Paul. But it's not just the theology of the Apostle Paul. It's the theology of Jesus. Jesus taught God's great sovereign love. He says, I'm the great shepherd. And you've given me these specific sheep. And these the specific sheep will hear my voice. They will hear and respond to the word of God. They will believe and trust in me. Here we even see the, the great doctrine of election in the Old Testament. Here we see God chose Abraham out of all the nations of the world. God chose Abraham out of all the Chaldeans of the world. There Abraham was. Completely undeserving of God's love. And God came to him. Not because he had won some contest or made himself worthy. But instead, completely unconditionally, God said, I'm going to cast my love upon you. 
I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to make a great nation spring up out of you. Why, do we, why does God do such a thing? Because it's in his divine will and purpose to do so, to bring himself the ultimate glory. And church, let me just tell you that in, in such a difficult doctrine for us to wrap our mind around, when we come to the word of God and we see such evidence that God has clearly, divinely chosen not just Abraham out of, instead of Ishmael, not just Jacob instead of Esau, but that God has chosen His people from the people of the world to be His church. Let's not deny such a doctrine because we don't understand it, but instead uh, strive desperately to seek what God's Word teaches us about it. Now, the Apostle Paul is one who is famously and, and spoke so much about it. And he even referenced it in Romans chapter 9. Very, uh, going back to the Old Testament, showing us the doctrine of election throughout all of the gospel or all of the Bible. Romans chapter 9. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. God called Abraham. And Abraham responded. And here these Jewish people are being reminded in their exaltation of the Lord that He didn't have to choose them, but He did. And in the same way, we respond in an an attitude of confession and worship, knowing that God has chosen us to be saved because we believed and trust in Jesus. We have been faithful to follow Him. Therefore, Therefore, we understand from Scripture that only the elect follow God. Therefore, we must be the elect if we follow Jesus. And that that's a a great gift of God that we don't deserve, that unconditionally it didn't fall upon us because of some merit of ours, but instead of God's great, unending, beautiful love. We praise God for His election. Thirdly, His deliverance. Verses 9-11, through continuing on, they respond by praising God for the deliverance out of Egypt. How he heard their cry at the Red Sea, performed many signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land. For for you knew that they had acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters." They were worshiping God as their great deliverer, delivering them out of Egypt. This first exodus in which they saw the wonders of God on display in Egypt. The wonders of God over a great nation of the Egyptians and all their duplicity and and multiplicity of gods that they worshiped. And here the one true God of, of Israel came in and laid waste to all that they believed. And literally caused a great frenzy and, and began with every plague to literally uh, to disassemble, in a, in a sense, the Egyptian beliefs in their own gods because of his power and his might. And as he delivered them out of Egypt, 
following through the, the, the path in which they would intersect with the Red Sea and opening the Red Sea with great power, defying all logic and nature, allowing the Israelites to pass through the Red Sea and then closing it in on its place, showing His power and might to His people. And they're worshiping God because of His great power and His great deliverance. And finally, His great provision. In verses 12 through 15, and even down into 22 through 25, this history of Israel, this story that's being told, they are reminded once again that that as they continued through the wilderness to the promised land, God never forsook them. They never went hungry. Their bellies were never empty. It even says that their feet never wore out nor swole. God provided every sense of accommodation that they needed and sustaining them. Look at verse 21. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. And they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things. This is in the promised land. Cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. All of these theological reflections by the Israelites, by these Jewish people, were really reminders of their story, of their history of what God had done. Choosing them, and, or creating them, and choosing them, and delivering them, and, and providing for them. And there they are, worshiping God. In contrast to who they are, they begin by worshiping Him and acknowledging Their understanding of His character and His nature. And this is what leads us to good confession. Having a good theological foundation of who God is. Now, if you haven't picked picked up by now as a church, we don't shy away from theology here. We're not afraid of it. We don't discourage it. We, we, We speak about... And, and, and quote great theologians because we think that theology matters. Because the truth is, and I didn't, I didn't coin this phrase, everyone's a, theolog- a theologian. Everybody has a, a concept and an understanding about who God is. The difference is, are you a good theologian or a bad one? Do you truly study and understand who God is from the Scriptures from the great men of history that have studied and tried to understand who God is and, and, and reflect upon their learning and, 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 and teaching? Or do you sit idly back and go, oh, I don't have to be a theologian. I'm just an everyday Christian. Every Christian is a theologian, good or bad. Ground yourself in who God is so that in your prayer life and in your daily life, it flows over into worship. It flows over into this life of confession so that in light of God's holiness and in light of God's goodness, you might see and be confronted with your own sin. And this is what's happening with the people of Israel. They are beginning this this worship time reflecting on all of God's goodness, reflecting on all He has done. And if you see in verse 16, 
the transition. Verse 16. But. But they. Our fathers. Acted presumptuously. And stiffened their neck. And did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey. And were not mindful of the wonders. That you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck. And appointed a leader. To return their slavery. Return to their slavery in Egypt. Starting in verse 16, we see a transition. We see a transition to their confession. All of a sudden now, from verse 16 down to the end of the chapter, there's a a mixing of God's gracious mercy and their continual sin and struggle with sin. So as we kind of observe this, uh, this, this act of confession among these Jewish people, kind of learning about our own lives as, as people of prayer and people that worship the Lord, knowing God that, that as we worship Him, we start in an attitude of worship and acknowledging His characteristics, the very characteristics of God then shed a light into the shadowy darkness of our own sin struggle. And that's what's happening here. The very history of Israel being recalled for us here is this example of God's character shining onto the darkness of Israel's sin. And so we come today acknowledging that, that as we study God's uh, character and we study His attributes and we understand who He is, be prepared. Because as you do, the Lord will reveal the sinfulness in your heart. The struggle that you have with sin. And, and as we talked about a few weeks ago, That grieving over sin, that mourning over sin, is a healthy response to how we might um, live in our world today. And so they respond by acknowledging their sin. They're confessing. Our fathers acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck. They did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey your rules. They were not mindful of your laws. They appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. It sounds almost crazy to us to imagine that that that's the story of Israel. But the truth of it is, is that's the story of all humanity. Our continual struggle with sin. That no matter what God does, No matter how He blesses us and He provides all that we have, we continually return back to our old man, as it says. And this is the acknowledgement there of the Jews. We know the story of Israel. Even some is is not summarized here. But at Mount Sinai, verses 16 and 18, they're reminded that they're, they're... uh, responding in disobedience to God, building and, and, and crafting the golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain, verse 18. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed and had committed great blasphemies. 
There the Israelites had saw, uh, witnessed and, 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 and saw that God had done, done miraculous things. And what did they do? They fell back into sin and fashioned a golden calf and worshipped it and said, this is the God that delivered us from the Egyptians. Not the one on the mountain. Not the one that, that, represent, that is represented through Moses. And we think, how could that possibly be? And, and the answer is a look in the mirror. The answer is day by day, even as people who follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge the struggle with our own sin. Just as the Jewish people did. They mentioned the promised land in verse 26 and 27. Again, disobedient and rebelling against God, casting His law behind their back, killing their prophets who had warned them to turn back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. So God ultimately tells us that that sin is a struggle in our humanity. That it is a part of our nature. And therefore, we will return to sin day by day. And the great hopefulness in the gospel is that Jesus Christ gives us victory over that sin. But as long as we live upon this earth, we will continue to struggle. We will continue to see the the effects of sin and feel the effects of sin, not only in the world around us, but in our own lives. And the easy thing, I think, for a lot of people in the church is, well, if I don't read the Bible, then it won't make me feel so guilty and feel so shameful. But as we said, this is a, a beautiful thing, a necessary thing for the Word of God to purify our hearts, to purify our consciences, to show us the things that dishonors the, the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we serve. And therefore, it is necessary for us to be molded and shaped by its words. The London Baptist Confession says that by nature we are children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all our other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to do all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. There's a lot there. What it does mean is that as we live in this world, when our children are born, we are diligently as parents teaching them the gospel, knowing that there is no morality that's going to spring up naturally in them that's for their good. Only spiritual change can do them good. Only spiritual, spiritual change can, can, can uh, give new life to the deadness in their hearts. So as innocent, as beautiful, and as uh, uh, cute as they may see, Seem, we, we, we have to be uh, reminded of, of the, the great danger that lies ahead. That Jesus Christ must save them as He has saved us. Because they are born into that corruption. Utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good. What a challenging thing for us. It's a challenging thing for me as a father to... 
to not want to put my child in the closet and say, stay in there until you're 30 years old because of the evil in the world. To put them in a bubble and try to protect them in such a way. That's not the right attitude to have. Instead, infusing the gospel in them to say, when you encounter these situations, when you encounter these things, do so in such a way that you would have faith in Christ and trust in Christ. And let His strength be that which helps you overcome. And so sin is a part of all of us as Paul says in Romans None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We acknowledge the doctrine of sin in light of the doctrine of God's character. This is the confession of the Jewish people. Over and over again. Verses 16 down through the rest of the chapter. They are constantly jumping back and forth between their failures and God's graces. Look at verse 17. They stiffened their neck, appointed a leader to return their slavery to Egypt, but you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf, And said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day. Nor the pillar of fire by night to light them for you the way in which they should go. I want you to imagine that for just a moment. And let me speak as parents and even as as, as to our grandparents. That when your children hurt you. When they look you in the face and, and, and do the opposite of what you've told them to do. It's the love that's in you for them that keeps you from turning your back toward them. It hurts. You feel the pain deep in your core when your children rebel against what you've taught them. When they turn their back on the things that, that you have said in rebellion. It hurts you. But it's love that keeps you there. It's love that is the commitment as a parent to love them through these difficult days. That is just a fraction. That is just a a, a shadow of what the Lord Jesus has demonstrated for us. That our Father sending His Son to be the sacrifice for us. Demonstrating that continual forgiveness. That continual mercy and slow of anger, and abounding in steadfast love for us, so that He doesn't forsake us. He doesn't forsake us in our sin. He doesn't forsake us in our evil, and in our struggle. Now, which this leads me then to the reality for man's need for God. This whole prayer focuses our attention on two things. One, God's character. The holiness and perfection of God. Two, man's failure in his struggle with sin. And then finally, it brings us to the point of saying mankind has a desperate need for God. That's what we need. 
We don't need any other thing that the world can offer us to bring some temporal change. We need God to change us from the inside. I know it's simple, but this is exactly what the the progression of this prayer is for these Jewish people. As they begin to acknowledge the characteristics of God and their own sinfulness, they come to the end of this chapter. And in verse 32, they declare, God, we need you. Look at verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings and our princes and our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and all the people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. They are asking for this help. They are crying out in distress for God. So much so that in the beginning of chapter 10, we won't get there today, but in the beginning of chapter 10, the end of chapter 9, verse 38, and into chapter 10, they reestablish their covenant with God. They make their commitment once again to say, God, we acknowledge who you are, we acknowledge who we are, and therefore, we see our need for you. We see that we have failed you. We see that we have broken our part of the, of the covenant, of the agreement that we have made with you. You are righteous in every way, and we are wicked. In essence, they're asking God for grace. They're asking God for mercy. And this is the story of of God and humanity. God revealing Himself as sinners into the world, knowing that man has a great desperate need for God, and that need is filled in His Son. The story of God culminates in the work of Jesus. Jesus coming to rescue the needy, to bind up the brokenhearted, to strengthen the weak. It's interesting, one of the things that I've taken away from this study, and what I've learned from this study more than anything else, is historically, the first exodus happened with Moses. We've, we've, We've covered that. The second exodus is being considered here in Nehemiah. And all of those things foreshadow the spiritual exodus, the, the spiritual liberation that, ex, that came with Christ. That was the final exodus. That was the final Passover. That was the final sacrifice that was going to be made. That was the final feast. That was the final rest. All of these things land upon Jesus. It culminates. The story of Israel and all of God's people culminate and in, in completed in the work of Jesus Christ. He comes to rescue the needy people. To provide the help that's needed. To bind the brokenhearted and strengthen the weak. And so we come, and, and, and Ezra and the Levites, they're, they're declaring their need for God to come and, and be their help. That they are in great distress, as they say in verse 37. In verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. In other words, Them saying formally, God, we need you. And so I just, I want to just kind of conclude with 
Very simple message. Why do you need God? Why do you need Him? Why is it that you have attached yourself to this idea of God and, and, and His Son, Jesus Christ? My prayer is that you understand your need for Him based upon your understanding of, of, of yourself. Of your own failings and your own weaknesses. On the fact that the wrath of God is upon all of those who sin. And only by the, the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross can we be forgiven of that sin. And that the love of the Father is being cast down upon the world so that we might see Jesus Christ as our rescue and our help. He is our great help in time of need. He is the one that comforts us when we are weak, strengthens us when we are, uh, excuse me, comforts us when we are mourning and strengthens us when we are weak. He is the one that saves us when we are incapable of saving ourselves. And so we have the promises of God's Word pointing to Christ Thinking about John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a promise for us. We're in need of everlasting life. We're in needing of, of a sacrifice to, to, pay the, to be the substitute for our sin. And there Jesus Christ is provided for us by the love of God, standing in our place so that we might not perish. He perished on our behalf. And rose victoriously, defeating sin and death. And so as we come to a conclusion, consider your confession to God. Your confession of His greatness. Your confession of your sin. And ask yourself if you fully trusted in Him. Put your, your trust upon Him fully and completely for salvation. Resting upon His work upon the cross to save you. And if you've not, let me encourage you to do so. He is able to save to the uttermost all who come to Him. That His sin, or excuse me, your sin is not too great for Him to overcome. Trust in Him and believe that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ saves sinners regardless of what we've done. He changes us, He makes us new, and he, and he receives His glory for that. Let's pray. Father, Your Word says in 1 John chapter 1, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray, God, that this would be the story of our lives. As we look at our lives, God, and we acknowledge the things that you have done for us, your character, your nature revealed to us, your salvation and provision, the things that Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf, we praise you. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve all that you've done, all that you've allowed us to experience and, and have in this world. Most importantly, Christ himself as our treasure. But you've given it to us 
to those who believed in you. And for that, we are graciously thankful. And we worship you. And we praise your son for all that he's done. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand with me as we sing Jesus Strong and Kind?